Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have joining from Nashville, Tennessee, Harris III. How are you, sir? Excellent, Luke. How are you, man? I am doing quite well, quite well. That's nice Harris, to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Harris the thir- First of all, I appreciate you rocking the black shirt today. I mean, uh, I feel like that's a good thing for a magician to do. Uh, rule. Is it? Are, are you an everyday, same shirt kind of person? I am. Uh, Steve Jobs. I, I, yes. uh, I'm fully subscribed. One less decision in the morning. I fully fully respect that. So way to go. Now, like I said, you, uh, magician, am I, is that the right terminology we're using these days? Yeah. It depends on who you talk to. Some, some people will get freaked out by the idea of magic and we go with illusionist. So magicians themselves are good with either. Which do like, if you're introducing yourself to someone, what do you uh, go with? I, I say I'm an illusionist these days, but probably not for the reasons that most would assume it's because I'm trying to redefine the word magic and what people think of when they hear that word. Uh-huh. So, because I don't think a magician is someone that can perform actual magic. Because um, otherwise, that that means that we're the only people who have the ability to live lives that are filled with magic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if anyone can experience magic, that means anyone can be a magician. So there is such a thing as a professional at those things. I, I think of them as illusionists, but anyone okay. can be a magician. Okay, you said you you do that not for the typical reason. The typical reason you would say illusionist, not magician, not the one you just said, but the typical reason is because <laughs> let me. I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess because like a Christian thinks magic is sorcery and it's yeah. evil, so you can't say. Is that oh, yeah. Yeah. is that the main one? That's still a thing. It's still a thing. It is okay. it's not as common as it used to be, but it is absolutely shockingly still a thing. So if you're playing churches, then you, you have to say illusionist for that reason. Okay, right. On. I just watched Harry Potter with my daughters. And so I actually believe in wizardry and sorcery <laughs> because I watch those movies. So I'm well past being saved from magic. It sounds like it. Yeah, there's some uh, some good Old Testament scripture we could get into on that. But I don't think that's what this podcast is about. Yeah, no, probably not. So probably not. But uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll pray for the salvation of my daughters. Uh, I probably am a lost cause already. But nevertheless, um. Yeah, never had someone who is in the, can I sell dark arts? That's Harry, Harry Potter language, isn't it? We don't call it dark arts, do we? No? No, no, they're just no? tricks. They're just, okay, come on. Okay, uh, <laughs> so you have a book out. It's entitled The Wonder Switch. And so I was just like, I've never had someone who does your line of work on the podcast before. And so I've got lots, lots of questions about your work. Are you are you are you sure you're up for this? Because I'm, I, I'm gonna. I don't have like these erudite, educated questions that come from like insiders who know the tricks of the trade. Like this is a complete oh, amateur idiot oh, who's just like, "Hey, you do magic? Let's talk about it." So that's I, mean, I, I, I am sworn to secrecy. So we'll see how this goes. You are sworn to secrecy. That was one of my questions. You can't tell me anything. <coughs> you have to keep it all to yourself. Uh, there's a lot I can share. There is. We'll, we'll see which questions you have. How do you determine what you can share and what you can't share? Uh, that's, that's part of the secret. You got to know. Is it, is, but no, like, is there like, hey, I, I, I'm part of this world, so I have to keep this for us and I can't share it with the outside world to preserve the sanctity of sorcery? Yeah. I mean, I don't want to get too meta, but it really comes down to what serves you best. And everyone thinks they want to know the secret to a magic trick, but knowing the secret is not what's best for them mystery is just really uncomfortable. And that, I mean, that gets straight into the book. I don't know if you want to go there yet, 
but we actively engage in crushing our own wonder in a year like 2020. And so if someone's like, hey, how did you make that table levitate? Or how did you cut that lady in half and put her back together again? I just really want to know the secret. Mm-hmm. They actually don't want to know the secret. They just feel tension that arises as a result of a sense of wonder and mystery. Um, but that's not really genuine curiosity. I call it counterfeit curiosity. So you, yeah. you don't want to know. You just think that you want to know. Well, that tension is required for a story to be told. Correct. A story is the solution of tension. And whether the, the story is, you know, a sporting event unfolding in front of you, is LeBron going to win this year or not? You know, Jimmy Butler, is he going to change the narrative? Is he a good teammate or a bad teammate? Like, those are all stories that are unfolding. And so when you're performing an illusion, you're, you're telling a story, right? Like, that's what you're saying. You, you don't want to undo the, the tension. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't even think of myself as a magician or an illusionist. Uh, while we're talking about labels, I think of myself as a storyteller who happened mm-hmm. to know how to perform magic tricks and create illusions. Let's go. Uh, you, I like that. Take a, lady a, take a lady or a guy, it doesn't have to be a girl, put them in a box, <clears throat> you pull out a big blade, cut them in half, put them back together again, right? Like the stereotypical magic trick that people sometimes think of when they see a magician. That is a story. That is, here's a thing. Oh, no conflict entered the lady got cut in half something bad happened how can we get her put back together well then that's the site that's act two you know everything comes back together we do the work act three oh my goodness it worked her body is back in one piece yay that was amazing how did you do that so really really great magicians have always understood that it's, it really comes down to the art of great storytelling magic is just a medium just like any other art form like music or comedy magic is just another one of the performing arts and it is a medium at which people can express themselves by telling a story through that particular art. Yeah. You've been performing since you were just a kid. And so that's been, are you looking almost 20 years at this point? Is that right? Yeah, it depends on when you start counting. I mean, I got a magic kit for Christmas from my grandmother when I was nine. And it's not at all what I wanted for Christmas that year. You uh, wanted the baseball glove. I wanted a baseball glove. Got the yeah. box of magic tricks. Thought it was dumb performed my first trick from my mom and dad. They were blown away. Uh, Mm -hmm. As I learned, wonder is contagious. And so their wonder in response to what they experienced from me in the form of that little magic trick in that moment sort of turned my wonder switch back on and gave me permission to explore all these new possibilities. And so it took two years, but I finally got paid $25 to do my first professional magic show when I was 11. So I am 37, I think now. So... We're looking no. at a quarter of a century years, right there. One on 30 years, yeah. <laughs> okay, we're, we're going to get into your story in a second. But so you, you've been doing this for, for 25 years. Let's say, you know, 20, let's, late teenager, you, you have the awareness to kind of read audiences and know what's going on. Um, I, so I'm reading the book and, you know, the idea of, you know, turning the wonder switch on, allowing yourself to be part of this. What came to my mind was a joke by the comedian Pete Holmes. Now, I don't know if you know who Pete Holmes, do you know who Pete Holmes is? Yes. Okay, so he was on the podcast a long time ago and... Uh, after he was on the podcast, he had a, a special, or no, I think he did this joke on like a late night show, but he talks about how some people are like, oh, I'm a hard laugh. I'm a hard laugh. You can't make me laugh. And he, he makes a joke about how people like almost brag about how they're a hard laugh as if that like that's some award for, oh, I'm not one of those people who's going to give you an easy laugh. And he, you know, and his, his, his point is like, what's the point? Like, just, just enjoy the joke for it. And as I'm reading the book, like you have these people, it seems like who who are watching these perform these storytelling events that are done by someone who happens to know magic. Am I getting closer to the, right? Okay. And it seems like I I can imagine the audience over 20 years 
have they changed in their ability to be more apt to, hey, you're going to have to convince me this is magic or I'm more likely to go along for the story? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's new. A hundred years ago, that didn't exist. And I don't think those hard laughs that he's referring to existed either. Maybe they did. I don't know. But, you know, if you imagine going into a theater a hundred years ago, it's 1920. You sit down, you watch a magic show, you experience something amazing that feels miraculous. What do you do with the tension that you feel? If you don't know how it works, you can't go home and Google it. You certainly can't reach into your pocket and pull out a device that gives you the answer in five seconds. So that, that forced, you know, living with the tension is just a part of the human experience up until the information age. And even in the information age, there was still this gap between the moment you come in contact with mystery and the moment that you're able to resolve it. Cause you've got to go find, you have to wait on the answer once you get to a device that you're able to type it into, you know, but now we have that in our pockets. And so the moment we feel that sense of wonder, even at a magic show, like I see it happen in real time. Yeah. Um, you know, like a lot of, not a lot of physical events are happening right now, but when you're in a room performing a magic show live for people, when something happens, you see, especially teenagers, college student age people, they will reach in their pocket, pull out their phone, and you can tell they're Googling the secret to the trick that they just saw take place on stage because they quite literally cannot handle the wonder. It's so unfamiliar. Um, and so I think we've all sort of been psychologically reconditioned to feel uncomfortable with mystery. So mystery, sitting in that tension, we're, is that it? Like, I can't live in wonder. Wonder is the ability to, to hold that tension of, I don't know what happened. Something took place that's beyond my grasp. And... Yeah, I, I don't want to send this. I want to grab my phone and figure out how this thing goes. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's willingness to lean into the feeling of awe, like to be in an awe state. We don't like to feel awe anymore. It's humbling. And sometimes it's, you know, it's intimidating to be in a moment of wonder because you're like, wait, I don't like this feeling of not understanding how something works. I don't like this feeling of watching someone do something that I can't explain because we live in an abundance of certainty and everything seems to be explainable. Which is like, it's no surprise that we have an entire generation now of people that difficult, have difficulties believing in anything mysterious, regardless of whether it's religion or spiritual or a conspiracy theory or something political. If it is mysterious to us, it's like, ah, I don't know, until you show me some proof, I can't embrace it. Yeah, and I can imagine someone pays money, comes to an event in which you're performing yet they still don't want to let themselves in some way like be the student and you're the teacher. Like, I, I don't want to let you have something over me that I just don't understand. Correct. Yeah. And look, we take responsibility. I say we as in like the magic community. Uh, I shouldn't say that all of us take responsibility for that, but I certainly think that, you know, we're guilty for creating that culture in which people go to a magic show thinking that it's some sort of mental chess match, right? Like you walk in and be like, okay, guys, are you ready for this? Uh, like, I bet I can fool you with this one. Some of that has been the way that magic has been presented on TV over the last 10 to 15 years. Uh, some of it has been just people watching really bad magic shows where magicians have come out as if they're there. And the only reason they exist on planet Earth is to fool you and to get one over on you. Magic is just capable of so much more than that as an art form. So you don't go to a concert uh, and be like, watch a guy shred on the guitar and be like, well, that totally, that was super lame because I know exactly which chords he was playing. If you know even a little bit about the guitar, then sure, you can probably see which chords he's playing, which, but that doesn't mean that you have the ability to play the guitar the way that he does. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so I think you can still go to a magic show and just appreciate the beauty and the mystery and the wonder and the story and the performance of the art without engaging in that sort of leaning in and having to figure out how everything works. And if you don't, to just say that's okay, rather than go home and Google it all so that you feel better about how smart you are. Mm-hmm. I'm going to confess. I would, st- <laughs> I would see, <laughs> I would see uh, an illusion happen in front of me and I would think, let me try to figure out how that happened. I, like, yeah. I don't think I could turn that off because my first yeah. thought is, okay, so if David Blaine's going to be in there for four and a half minutes or six minutes and then he's going to get out, like, what is he doing? Is he popping his shoulder out of socket? How, like, I, I'm thinking, how do I understand that? I think that's okay. I think that's okay. It's that there's this balance, right? There's this, oh man, you're leaning in, you're trying to figure it out and eventually just submit to the mystery as opposed to feeling, you know, like, oh man, like I can't figure it out on my own. So therefore I have to go find the answer. And so you feel compelled to go ask the people around you. Or if you, my, my favorite bad example is when someone does figure it out and they're so proud of figuring it out that they turn and they, crush that moment for the people around them. And so a lot of times you see like leaning over in magic shows, you see people leaning to the person sitting next to them going, I know how he just did that. It was this and this and this. And then those people go, Oh, that's it. As if knowing the secret is the ability to perform magic trick. And that's like going to, I don't, I don't want to overuse music as a metaphor or analogy, I should say, but you know, going to a music store and buying a piano or a keyboard or guitar doesn't make you a musician any more than you figuring out the secret to how a trick works makes you a magician or an illusionist. Mm -hmm. You know, it's how that trick is performed. It's the craft that's brought to it. It's the story that's told through it. There's so much more at play. And you knowing that secret doesn't give you the ability to go perform that trick for someone else because the difficulty is in the execution of it, not in the knowledge. You've got this great line where you say cynicism is pretending that I'm not afraid. Yeah. That's actually Bob Goff. He says that cynicism is fear is fear posing as confidence. That's And that's deep, man, isn't it? It, it like, is. It takes a second to sort of let that seek in. The cynicism is fear posing as confidence. Um, wow, yeah. Yeah, same, so like, same idea. Yeah, but it's like I'm, I'm pretending like I'm not afraid. And mm-hmm. so I'm just going to like come at this a sideways angle. And it's not being honest. It's not being vulnerable to what is actually happening. And it seems like we're, we're getting more cynical right now, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. We're getting more cynical because we think that seeing is believing. And even if we don't think that, it's certainly the way that we're living. So, you know, it's like, well, I know a guy who can do this. Yeah, right. I'll see that one. I'll believe that when I see it, right? So then you bring them to the show, you watch them do this magical feat with sleight of hand or psychology or whatever. And you're like, oh, man, I can't believe it. But I saw it with my own eyes. But yet the thing that you're seeing a magician do just because you saw it with your own eyes doesn't make it real. And so when we live as if seeing is believing, um, it sort of creates this attitude of, I can't believe anything until I see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, that's just, it's fear on display. It's cynicism. Yeah. Um, it's and, and, confidence. Yeah. And the flip side then is wonder. Uh, you talk about the idea that like wonder gives permission to believe what you currently don't see. And so yeah. cynicism, fear, like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not going to be, but, but wonder gives you the permission that, hey, I'm going to be in this even if I don't currently see everything in front of me. Yeah. I think it's the easiest way to define wonder. I spend a lot of time thinking about it and it's obviously a state. It's a noun that we can find ourselves in, but you know, wonder really gives us the presence of it gives us permission to believe in what we have yet to see. And so finding your way back to a state of wonder 
helps you move from thinking, seeing is believing to living as if believing is seeing. And that's what all the science backs up. The science backs up that our senses can easily be fooled, that confirmation bias is a very real thing. So seeing is definitely not always believing, but the science supports the fact that what we believe has the power to change what we see. And cynical people hear that and they think like, oh, that's some sort of like new age, woo woo, like the secret. If I just believe in it hard enough, it will manifest Mm -hmm. itself. And that's not what it is. It's not this like idea of attraction sort of thing. It's that believing the belief in something gives us permission to see it, that the belief in something sometimes it's almost as if it causes the scales to fall from our eyes and see something that was there all along. You probably have an example of a friend at some point in your life that you're like, dude, why can he not see the truth? It is right there in front of his face. Why can he not see it? It's not that that truth exists for you and doesn't for him. It's that you believe it to be true, which is what permitted you to see. And so sometimes what we believe has the power to change what we see. Yeah. You have the, the Henry Ford line about, uh, you know, the person who believes they can and can't do it are both right. And like, there's something about your mentality that shapes your future. Uh, yeah, that's, Mm -hmm. um, that does seem very new agey to me. Like, oh, I'm just going to name and claim it and just, you know, put positive energy on the universe. And it does feel that way, but there's also something about like whatever's true, whatever's lovely, whatever's pure, like think about these things. And And, and just it informs the creative process too. Right. So like our, our God given ability to be creative, you know, like, I'll give you an example. Like I've worked with a lot of groups who sit down, they, they get stuck trying to innovate. And then in a year like 2020, like all the innovation is forced, right? Like they have been ripped out of an old story, thrown into a new one, and they are forced to change and innovate. Well, what I've noticed is that teams who understand that believing is seeing the belief that a solution could possibly exist gives them permission to be creative and go explore and find that solution. So it's not that the solution is already there. It's not that they've already created it. It's that their belief that it could exist gives them permission to go find it versus the people who are like, well, there's no way we're going to be able to solve that problem or that's never going to work. The belief that that new solution can't exist doesn't give them permission to explore. And so they just sit around and whine about it and they get stuck in that old story without ever going and writing and creating a new one. Yeah. You reference a, it's a pretty dark study about rats that they put rats in this bucket of, of water and uh, yeah. like and they're like let's just see who drowns the 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 slowest which I'm sure like all of our PETA friends are not going to support that study at all <laughs> but like the 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 point of that very macabre um, study is that the level of of hope that you have keeps you yeah. going the longest and there's like you know the wild rats they get thrown in and like hey this is terrible I'm out but the ones who've been in captivity domesticated rats uh, is that even possible I don't know another subject yeah. for another time but like they're gonna last like what like nine minutes compared to one minute the, the point is that there was so, and then the idea, like, if you pull the rats out and you give them some affection, yeah. and put them back in, which again, like, what kind of monster pulls a rat out from drowning and say, hey, I'm going to put you back in and let you drown? Again, another subject, another time. But your point is, like, the, the amount of hope that you have di- dictates where you go and what you do. Yeah. I mean, that's the biggest takeaway for me is when they come in and help out the rats, right? So when they drop a rat into a jar of water to, to measure this baseline of how long can rats swim until they can't swim any longer, you know, 
say it's like three hours, like, okay, a rat can swim for three hours. And apparently all of the rats believe they can only swim for three hours if that mm-hmm. is the consistent baseline. Right. But if you go back and read the study and find out the actual times just before the rats give up, they came in, swooped them, they rescued them, make sure they were okay, and then drop them back in. Well, all of a sudden rats can swim for days. And so yeah. the rats were capable of so much more than they believed they could just because of the hope, like how hope introduced possibility into the story. Mm-hmm. And humans are the same way. We are storytelling creatures. And so yeah. what we believe changes what we say, what we see by way of the stories that we tell ourselves and the narratives that we adopt. And so if hope exists in our narrative, it changes the story that we write and end up living out. It's really powerful. It is. Um, yeah. It it's, also, it, it's a dark study. It also reminds me of my high school wrestling coach who like <laughs> once a year, he would cancel practice and let us play dodgeball. But every other day we would like run for an hour and you know drill for two hours. And it was just terrible. But there's that one day where he just lets us play dodgeball, which made the entire season worthwhile. Um, okay. I want to tell your story. We got, that possibility changed. I know. I know. We, we, we called it yeah. war ball. And it was the one thing that got us through the entire winter season <laughs> of not eating and, and working out for four hours a day. But I want to get back to your story because we got way ahead of ourselves here. Um, so you're nine. You go to your grandparents' house in like Michigan. Is that right? St. Louis, Missouri. Yeah. Missouri, Michigan. It's close enough. And uh, so you get there and you're wanting this baseball glove. Instead, you get this, you know, unforeseen gift of a uh, magic set. And so at, you, you try it out, you see the one in your parents' face and you're hooked. Like you, you just mm-hmm. mentioned that a second ago. And then all of a sudden, like it starts this journey. And early on, you find a mentor who starts showing you the way, which by the way, like how do you find a magic mentor? <laughs> is there is there like a website? Is there an Man, app? That one, that one found me. Yeah, it was, uh, I this guy just started showing up at our church and doing magic tricks for the kids. And I used mm-hmm. to be drugged to church every like three times a week by my parents and mm-hmm. um, hated it. And then all of a sudden church was cool because there was a magic dude there doing tricks uh, so you, i begged him to become my first mentor do you think as a pastor if i could start doing some magic kids would like to come to church more uh i do that opens up another whole can of worms about <laughs> okay what what you do to attract them is what you have to do to keep them so what happens when they when you stop doing magic tricks <laughs> i think what you're gonna find is i'm just gonna like find your address and stand outside and like hey okay mentor me teach me something pay it forward okay uh, so you have this this great experience and early on, things are going really well. And then you write a really uh, a really painful part of the book where you talk about this second mentor who, um, uh, you know, did some terrible things. And mm-hmm. as you're writing a book and you're, you're telling this, obviously, you've already talked about it publicly. You mentioned that in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, as you're writing it, putting pen to paper on this, are you finding new layers of like the hurt and the pain that you've experienced coming uh, out? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And not as much writing, uh, but dude, little behind, look behind the curtain. Um, the audiobook recording day wrecked me. Uh, really? Like my voice got shaky. And there's something about like reading those words out loud into a microphone, even though no one was listening except for the produ- producer and engineer that day. Um, but yeah, it's, it forces you to continue to process it at a deeper level. And as we grow and learn about ourselves, we grow in wisdom, we get healthier. And even though you work through a lot of that with a lot of therapy and help and guidance from counselors, anytime you revisit trauma like that, you're revisiting it through the lens of the new wisdom that you've grown in. Um, so it continues to trigger these aha moments in my story. So yeah, absolutely. Hmm. 
Rob Bell was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he talks about he start atoms and molecules and particles, all the stuff that I don't really understand. But he makes this observation, <laughs> which I had actually uh, studied up a little bit beforehand, uh, about molecule, molecules, how they behave different when you observe them. And if you don't observe them, they, they do you know, a plethora of different things. But when you observe them, all of a sudden they act different just because someone's watching. And he makes this great connection to grief where something about our grief is different. Even if someone can't change it, they can't undo it, they can't go back in time. Mm-hmm. But for someone to say, I'm here with you, I've been there, it, it does something. And so I'm, I'm reading your story and you talk about telling this on stage and then as you walk off stage, you stumble into Max, Max Lucado, who makes the comment that, you know, I've been through this as well. What did that do for you hearing Max uh, be vulnerable about his own history to you? It made me feel seen, gave me a sense of belonging, made me aware of the fact that I wasn't alone in my suffering. There was an exchange of empathy that was more powerful as the result of a shared story. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, it's pretty powerful when people exchange stories like that. There's this magic that takes place and um, it was pretty special to me. And obviously to me just felt, uh, I mean, that moment felt orchestrated. I, not that I believe that much of life at all is a coincidence, but I don't think it was just by chance that he was out on the road that weekend with his daughter and uh, that we were on the same, in the same venue together and that he happened to be there in that moment as I walked off stage. So uh, yeah, felt, felt powerful. If I understood correctly, that turned the wonder switch off for you going through that trauma, which it seems like that mm-hmm. is a very common uh, mm-hmm. experience. And I'm not trying to trivialize as it, though it is a common experience, but the response to such a trauma is often what you described. Absolutely. Yeah. How, what helped you find that wonder again? Yeah. Well, healing to in response to trauma, right? Like, Again, I don't want to go too deep into this until you want to start talking about. Let me know how deep you want me to go. Yeah. Feel free to cut me it's off. Your story, man. Yeah. You no know, trauma is stored in the lower third limbic system of our brains. It's part of our brains that also produces a lot of active storytelling. You know, and trauma is quite literally our brain's inability to make sense of that part of our story. Right. So all of us adopt a narrative at childhood. There's multiple things that inform that narrative: the stories that we're told, what people show us to be true about how people are supposed to treat us. Right. And so throughout our childhood, adults treat us a certain way. And so we form a narrative going, okay, this is how a mom treats me, or this is how a dad treats me. So if someone had an absent dad and they were growing up, that paints their narrative about what a dad is, right? And they hold on to that. So you grow up and by early on in childhood, that narrative is formed. Well, when something happens that breaks the narrative, your brain can't make sense because you're like, wait, hold up. This is not, I trusted you because I thought these characters in this story were supposed to act this way. And all of a sudden I get blindsided by this trauma because it doesn't compute. And my brain's inability to make sense of that data and information, quote unquote, that experience is what breaks the narrative. And so when that narrative gets broken, it produces shame, produces lies, changes the stories we tell ourselves. They begin to be filled with lies and a lot of them aren't true. Right. And all of a sudden that broken narrative, I think is what, crushes our wonder it turns the wonder switch off and it's almost like we come into the world with the lights on that's why i love the metaphor of a switch so it's like we're born with the wonder switch on but when we experience that trauma in childhood that's what turns the switch off and it's almost like being blinded it's almost like turning the lights off because all of a sudden you're wandering around and you can't see unless you heal properly 
you don't know how to navigate that experience and you don't know how to navigate the experiences that follow because again, we're all storytelling creatures and narrative is what drives all human behavior. So if that narrative is broken, you don't know how you're supposed to behave. You don't know how you're supposed to communicate. You don't know how to relate to other human beings. So I think so much of it has to do with trauma and the process of healing from that trauma and the shame and addiction that can so often accompany it. What do you think the role of a friend who is observing the grief and the trauma that you're going through is in that moment? How, how do we assist uh, those who are surviving these traumas? Uh, you know, how do we help them get the light switch back on? Yeah, I mean, part of it is to, to shine the light, right? To constantly try to turn the lights on. And I think we do that by way of being, you know, to be present with, to allow someone to be fully seen. Um, to remind them of who they are and who the, what the truth is, not in a preachy, like, Hey, I'm trying to tell you the truth. And that's a lie. That just makes that person feel more judged and feel more shame. Because again, just because you tell something, you tell someone that something is true, they may have an inability to believe that to be true because they can't see it. And they all think that seeing is believing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in the book, I have this thing called the transformation map, and it's just this circle that kind of shows us the process of how we move from an old story to a new one. And there's multiple steps that help us heal from trauma and come back into what I think is triggered by an inciting incident. You know, a lot of times inciting incidents can lead to trauma, but inciting incidents can also be incredibly positive. And inciting incidents can, can serve as a spark that leads us back towards a, a state of awe, and then leading us back to an ability to believe and embrace the truth, which mm-hmm. can restore our narrative and turn the wonder switch back on. Wow. So this happens to you. You're uh, a boy, and you keep touring. Uh, you mm-hmm. have this uh, great d- deal of success by the age of 21. Uh, you, you made a million dollars. You got a nice house in Nashville now, and things are going really well, and then it all kind of falls apart. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that is a result of, you know, living throughout my teenage years without a lot of wonder, little sparks here and there, but never really getting back to fully awakening, uh, the wonder of my childhood. Um, again, that wonder was crushed by that abuse. And so my life was just permeated with lies and deception, uh, all the way through to 21. And so, you know, once you make a million dollars by 21, I, I was growing up in a small town at the time. So, we were a pretty poor family by American standards. My mom got minimum wage as a housekeeper. My dad was paid minimum wage as a factory worker. And so, you know, all of my happiness and addiction and frustrations and pain, depression, all the stuff that I struggled with in my teenage years, I thought could be fixed by, Oh, I just, everyone keeps talking about this thing called the American dream. And I've heard so much about it now. I want to buy that. I can afford to build a big fancy house. I can afford to fill that house up with nice stuff. Mm-hmm. I can afford to park a couple of nice expensive cars in the driveway. And I have celebrity friends by that point that I can be seen driving around town in wearing $300 jeans. So I'm just going to go do that. And that's going to solve all my problems. Mm-hmm. So when I did that, you know, I, there's, first of all, it's never enough. The illusion of more is pretty powerful. So it doesn't matter who I was seen with, how many autographs I signed, how expensive my stuff was. I was still totally empty, but it was just, it was constantly me putting on a show to try to maintain the perception of other people so they could see me the way I wanted to be seen, which was enough and valuable and lovable and, you know, a sense of belonging and acceptance. So when you don't feel like you 
have that and you're trying to buy it, you just keep buying more and more and more. Right. So a yep. million dollars wasn't enough to buy it all. No. Uh, it never made me happy. So I just somehow ended up racking up hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and was mm. bankrupt by 22. Wow. Uh, 21 seemed like a better year than 22, uh, <laughs> as you tell the story. But so you're a touring musician, or touring musician, touring magician who's, who's doing mm-hmm. extremely well, but you didn't have the wonder switch turned on. And it, would that be a fair comparison of like the pastor who's like riddled with doubt and, you know, they, they can, you know, preach a really good sermon, but, you know, that sermon doesn't really connect to their core identity and how they navigate life. Is that a fair comparison? Yeah, you know, I I would say that, you know, the lack of wonder contributes in general to cynicism, consistent worry, anxiety, rooted in a bunch of things that we have no proof that will ever happen. That's why I talk about imagination uh, Mm -hmm. a lot in the book, how worry is a misuse of imagination. It contributes to a sense of complacency because we stay stuck instead of living with curiosity. And so I don't think it, it could be bankruptcy. It could be preaching messages that you don't truly believe in. I think that story's lived out in a lot of ways, but what they all have in common is with, with an absence of wonder comes the existence of all of those things. There's an inability to have joy in the simplest of things. There's an inability to have meaning and purpose because you lose sight of your why, uh, why you exist and why you do what you do, which I think is anchored into the magic of your childhood or the magic of adulthood, wherever you found it. And so I think when you lose those things, it can lead to some pretty dark places. It doesn't matter what your vocation is or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what you found meaning and purpose in. When you lose wonder, it takes you to a pretty dark place. Yep. So, yeah, I think so. When you talk about uh, losing purpose, you, you tell a story, which I assume happens after you're 21, where you're at a school and you're trying to, like, you're, you're building a crowd for the event at night. And so you're trying to get some of the, oh, yeah. the kids to show up. Yeah, and man. was it the principal who comes out and, like, says something about, like... Uh, you know, help them find their purpose or some sort of yeah. like statement like that where you're just like, hey, d- do something. Yeah. That was beyond- w- w- okay. Tell the story that I obviously botched a, a good a good bit there. No, it's good. I'm impressed. You were like genuinely read the book and took a lot of great notes. I'm, I'm genuinely impressed. I, you know, when, <laughs> well, when you go bankrupt at 21 uh, or 22, I guess, it, it forces you to take a step back and try to figure out your life. Right. Cause I had some tough things yeah. that I needed to face and some big decisions to make. And so, which included like selling your house that you just built, selling all your stuff to start digging out of this massive debt. Did you sell the $300 uh, jeans? <laughs> I did actually. I sold literally almost everything I owned. <laughs> went without TV for two years, like not wow. cable. I literally went without television or home. We moved to the opposite side of town into a house that was a third the size. Like mm-hmm. it was completely one degree, 180 degrees. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know what to do with my life. I was like, is this even my purpose? Am I supposed to be doing magic shows? Like, yeah. I don't know what I want. And, but it's all I knew how to do. Cause it's all I had done and been obsessed with since the age of nine. Right. And so I just stopped traveling around doing magic shows. And I was at this school in Michigan. And the real reason I was there, as you said, um, cause you actually told the story correctly was to promote this show later that night. Mm-hmm. And so a common strategy was like, if you're in town early, You roll into town, you jump off the bus, you go do a quick shower at a hotel room, and then you go hit as many local places as you can to promote and sell tickets to the big show at the local theater that night. And so I was doing the school assembly. Principal walks in. He's like, hey, you're the magician. I'm like, yeah. And he goes, well, you know how to trick people. Why don't you go out there and tell those students how they're getting tricked and making all the bad choices they're making? And I was like, 
I don't know how to do that. What kind of bad choices are you talking about? And he's like, they're bullying people. They have low self-esteem. Like things are a mess right now because of this, this, and this. So I'm like, dude, I'm just a magician. I don't know. I'm not a motivational speaker, which is what I felt like he was asking me to be. Mm-hmm. And I remember nothing about that show except for I did a straight jacket escape at the end. A la Houdini, right? Like had a couple students put me inside of a straight jacket. I escaped from it. And I have this guy like, over on the side up against the wall, the principal, like, you know, like, Hey, I felt like he was saying, now is your last chance. Like, to <laughs> tell how it works. Um, and I just remember holding up that straight jacket and, you know, for one of the first times being kind of raw and real and vulnerable, which for a magician who spends his time tricking people is, you know, not a common thing we're used to putting on a show. And so, you know, I let down my guard, stopped with the show, and was just audience with these kids. I was like, hey, I don't know what your straitjacket is. Here's some of mine. You know, I'm digging out of debt. Four years ago, five years ago, I had a million dollars. and Now I have nothing. Um, and when I was a teenager, here's all the things I was addicted to. And some of them I'm still trying to fight my way out of. I've had a lot of straitjackets. But I want you to know there's always hope. So I don't know what your straitjacket is, but I know that we all have one. And there's always hope. And so I just encourage you guys to get real. And you know how this is because you've given talks and messages before, but like, as everyone gets up to leave, I am like beating myself up inside my head. I'm like, that was the worst presentation I've ever given in my entire life. Mm -hmm. And there was this girl that was still sitting in the bleachers after everyone left. She walks down, she's bawling tears all over her face. And she's basically like, Hey, I have something for you. I'm like, what is it? And she said, hold out your hands. And I remember sort of cupping my hands and she reaches in her pocket and she pulls it out and she drops her razor blade into my hands and said, that's my straight jacket. And I don't want it anymore. And you're the only person to ever make me feel like there's hope. And dude, I was like, I don't, I don't know what to say. First of all, um, I'm just like, wow. Uh, and I get it ready to ask her name. I remember never getting her name because someone came around the corner um, and basically was like, Hey, time to go back to class. But as she walked away, I have this memory in my head of seeing, watching her stick her hands down inside of her pockets. And I saw her forearms for the first time and saw all the scars up and down her wrists and her arms. And I became obsessed with trying to understand why someone would do something like that because I'd never come in contact. I never had that kind of intimacy with someone who has struggled with cutting. And so just desperately wanted to understand and one thing led to another, which led to another, which led to another piece of research. And I kept going down the rabbit hole. And where I landed was understanding the power that storytellers have to shape narratives yeah. and that we as human beings are wired as storytellers. And so those narratives that we adopt, whether they are true or not, drive all human behavior, drive the choices we make, change the way we see ourselves in the mirror because believing is seeing yeah. um, and can drive us to make some pretty bad choices. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's when I be, began to discover my, my why, when I tapped back into the purpose of like, Oh, this is, this is why I do what I do. Yeah. You've got and the Steve, the Steve job lines about uh, the most powerful person in the world is a storyteller. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. that's so true. That, that image of that kid walking back and you seeing the scars in her forearm when she puts her hands in her pockets. Oh, that's powerful. Um, that's heartbreaking. And, um, so like that, that becomes your why and your mm-hmm. things are turning, things are different. Um, and, uh, so I guess it was your, your son was like one year old at the time and it's like 4th yeah. of July and 
like I hate that I'm doing this. Like I like I'm you put in your book, so I can I guess. But like I hate that I'm bringing up like a failure. But uh, you know, no, such, such is life. I had a friend who was Baptist worship leader, did like denials and summer camps, and so there was an illusionist. This is the title that he went by uh, that he worked with. And uh, this is terrible. I'm laughing right now. I'm a terrible human being for this. But he was doing this illusion in which there is like the cross that went through Jesus's arms, five inch nail, and it's in one of the three bags in front of him. And so oh, he does no. this trick, all the, you know exactly where it's going. And so he has this slip up, and he puts his hand over the wrong bag. So he smashes the bag down, and everyone's worried. And then he does the next one and he does the wrong one. And instead of the empty one, it's the one with the nail in it and the nail goes right through his hand. And the thing that I, that sticks out to me about the story is afterwards, the whole crowd is like, what do we do right now? This guy just like crucified himself right here. And my buddy tells a story that like he throws him in his, um, you know, Nissan SUV and drives him to the hospital. But before they leave, a guy walks up or a lady, excuse me, doesn't know what to do. So he says, so she says to him, here, drink this and hands him a Mountain Dew. Like Mountain Dew is like the elixir for healing when you like (laughs) impale your hand. So that's like the image I keep of thinking of, okay, I'm never going to forget that story. But you have a story where it probably was equally as painful. You're at a 4th of July thing. You have this like fire breathing thing. And mm-hmm. you have like this momentary lapse and what happens is like you, you burn your face. It's second degree burns on your face. Yeah. Right now you look pretty good. I don't see any residual scars. So it seems like you heal pretty, pretty well. You look like this. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful man. Well done. Uh, whoever <laughs> worked on that thing. But everyone who's gotten on stage has had a failed performance. I've had many sermons. That I feel like that didn't go well. I have never burnt my face off. That's a different story. Like that's a different kind of failed performance. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty embarrassing. Do, it's hard. It humbles you. Do you give up that trick to go back to the trick right away? What do you do? Like, I have to get right back on the horse, or never go on the horse again? Yeah, I think it depends on how you heal from the trauma, right? So everyone's story is different. I certainly, I don't have a problem now doing what I failed at. Now doing it again because I've worked through it. I understand very clearly the foolish mistake that I made that night. Uh, and it was so dumb. I can't still to this day, you go back and you kick yourself and you're like, why did you do that? It was so foolish. Um, but it's, you know, I, I also started getting arrogant again. I, you know, as much as that, that exchange with that young girl at the high school in Michigan changed me and helped me find a purpose, you know, this was almost a decade later. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, out of that experience and you're like, okay, wow, like that's deep. I want to, I want that kind of purpose. I want that kind of meaning in my life and my work. And so you find your way back to wonder, but then, you know, when you're back on top, so to speak, and you've made millions again, like when you make a million by 21 and then you lose it all by 22, naturally that humbles you, right? Like that's a pretty big slap in the face. You got to wake up and go, okay, what's life all about? And then you have that experience of that girl in the straitjacket. And then you realize the power that storytellers have. And then you connect all these dots and you're like, whoa, Okay, so she got tricked into not believe into believing that she wasn't enough. The bullies at her school got tricked into thinking they were better than her. So there's all this deception that took place, all these untrue stories that were being exchanged, and the result was these really bad decisions where kids in her school were committing suicide. She was cutting herself. Bullying was rampant. Well, when I had the aha moment that those principles of psychology that made all those lies possible are the same principles of deception that make magic tricks work. 
like that turns on the wonder switch, right? Like that gives me purpose. I'm like, whoa, wow, wow, wow. So now I go travel around the world. Well, now I've got this new thing and people are all excited about it because no one's talking about this from this such unique perspective as an illusionist. So fast forward five, six, seven years, man, I'm now I'm all over the place again. Now I'm making films. I got new DVDs releasing back when DVDs were a thing. I'm doing 150 bookings a year. Um, back to making seven figures again. You're like, I found this thing called story conference. Um, so we started doing that. Apple started showing up. Google started showing up. Uh, Disney Imagineers started paying to attend the conference. And I was like, this is super cool. Right. And so if you're not careful, even though wonder drove all of that, you end up back on top and you start becoming cynical because you go, Oh, I've been there, done that. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've seen that before. Oh yeah, I became desensitized to the magic that I was even experiencing in my own life. Um, and the result of that combined with a failure of making a foolish mistake that you were trained by a professional not to make, it just leads you back to that dark place. That's why that transformation map that I referenced earlier that I say is in the book, that's why I eventually ended up in a circle. I was trying to map out the process of going from you know, being born with your wonder switch on to trauma and a broken narrative crushing your wonder to trying to find your way back to wonder again. But just because you start with it in childhood and then it gets crushed eventually, if you even if you find your way back to wonder in adulthood, there's no guarantee that you get to stay there. So when I'm fire breathing and set my face on fire, like that sucked me back down to the bottom half of the circle of the transformation map because once again trauma was introduced, but I wasn't in a healthy place of living. I wasn't in a healthy season. Um, and the result was instead of responding to that trauma by correcting the narrative, I got sucked into these untrue stories, which then gave birth to shame again. Mm. Uh, and so it, it was another example of trauma that I had to heal from to find my way back to wonder. Yeah. It, it seems that, you know, to stick with your metaphor of like the wonder switch, like it seems like there's, there's always going to be times that it gets turned off. Like there's never like this mm-hmm. once, you know, one shot current or, uh, you know, get rid of it forever. It's like, there's no silver bullet or panacea. Like it is this constant fight yeah. that there are always things that are trying to pull the switch down and we've got to do the practices to keep them on. Yeah. Uh, so right. I think, I think we can spend more and more time in wonder. And I think once we turn the switch on, we can better equip ourselves to respond to those inciting incidents that attempt to turn it back off. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're absolutely right that it's this never ending cycle. And the reality is it's probably, more like a dimmer switch. So oh, where there good. is an inciting incident that is so strong that the switch gets just turned off. It's once we find it turned back on, it's probably like throughout our lives it sort of dims and it's our job to constantly come back in and fade it back up again. Yeah. By surrounding ourselves and creating an environment of wonder in our home, by creating an, a culture of wonder in our work so that that wonder once awakened can be sustained and we can benefit all that, you know, all that comes with it. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. You talk about how your son who, uh, you know, I think it's like five, he's five at the time. Jude is his name, right? That yeah. like the wonder that he has the all that he lives with it, it's in some ways, like you're obviously the parent and you're obviously the one taking care of him, but there is some way like that his awe and his wonder oh is like this inspiration to you in the same way. Like I'm a parent, I've got three kids and like the joy that they have, the the ability to live in the moment, to be present, and to be aware of the goodness that every moment carries. Like it, it, it is contagious to me. And so, yeah, all these people, I, I love the idea. It's not like off on like a traditional switch, but it's it's more aware, it's less aware, it's more bright, it's less bright, and keeping it, mm-hmm. uh, keeping people to help you do that. Yeah, it's spot on. It's really good. I love it. 
Yeah. I think the common myth is that, oh, so if, if wonder exists, then I just have to hope and pray that I come in contact with it. Um, and I don't think like magic is real and it's all around us. Roald Dahl famously said that those who don't believe in it will never find it. Yeah. So again, it goes back to, if you think, oh, I'll believe in magic when I see it, you're never going to find it because believing is seeing. But if we believe in the magical things that we've been surrounded by in all of creation and in ourselves, once we become aware of that magic, it permits us to live in a constant state of wonder. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the concern is that people think like, oh, I'd be nice if I had it. And I love the seasons of my life where wonder feels like it's more wide awake. But I, and I, obviously it's why I wrote a book about it. So I'm a little bit biased, but <laughs> I think that wonder is incredibly sustainable. I think we can live in a constant state of awe and wonder. And there's so much neuroscience out now around understanding the way our bodies are even wired for wonder that, that the presence of that awe, the presence of that wonder can boost our immune systems, decrease stress, even decrease chronic inflammation in our bodies. Like how much more proof do you need that we're wired for wonder than that? That when we are in a state of awe, if we have chronic inflammation in our body, it starts to go away. Um, that's amazing to me that it increases empathy and our ability to connect with other people on an emotional level, that the presence of awe and wonder creates this sense of smallness, not in a negative way, but it increases our humility and opens us up to new narratives, helps us connect with other people and recognize that their story matters as much as our own. Mm. Helps us take our eyes off of our phones and look up at the stars at night from time to time because it makes us aware of our place in the vastness of the universe. Wonder is this really powerful thing. So I just want to make sure that people listening don't think like, yeah, even though it kind of ebbs and flows throughout our lives, we have much more control and agency and power to keep that wonder awake rather than just live as if it's up to happenstance. Mm, that's good. And that's a, yeah, I like the way you say that it's, we have agency on this. And honestly, if you can get all of us off our phones to look at the stars at night, like that might be the best magic trick anyone could ever perform in this day and age. So, uh, you figured <laughs> that one out. Good for you. Um, final question for you. There was a video of Kanye with Dave Chappelle uh, a few weeks back, maybe it was months back. You know, Kanye had a rough go of it. Chappelle goes up to see him. Kanye posts this video, and Chappelle's standing right next to him. And Kanye says, hey, you know, Dave, we need to laugh for now. Tell us a joke. And Chappelle acted like every comedian does in a moment like that. We're like, uh, I, I, I just can't make it happen right now. It's like when you ask a preacher to say like a really like good prayer <laughs> right before the meal. Like, uh, give, uh, give me, I need my, you know, uh, keyboard player to kind of play me into this when someone says hey just do a magic trick for me do you have that same sense of uh uh give me i can do this but give me a second or do you have one ready to go a magic trick yeah uh yeah there's always something ready to go i prefer to perform magic with everyday objects that don't require secret stuff that you go buy from a magic store uh so there's there's always something ready to I, go. I hate what I'm about to do right now. All right. So perform one for me. Can you perform one on a podcast? <laughs> work over a podcast. Oh. So everyone looking in is just going to be like, what just happened? Well, it's, it's, it's about me though, right here. Let's just, uh, okay. yeah, I'll give you an example here. Take your hands since, since you can see me yeah. and I can see, take your hands, put them out in front of you like this. Okay. Hands in front of me. Got it. Okay, go it helps me stretch out a little stretch bit. Stretch out a little bit. Okay. I'm stretching okay. back out. Hands more. See how your thumbs are up. Yeah. Bring them down to the inside like this, or they're pointing down. Okay. Take one, cross it over the other. Okay. And lock your fingers and squeeze them together really tight. Okay. Done. See your pinkies that are like right there at the top of your screen. Make sure sh make sure you can wiggle only your pinkies at the same time, but make sure your thumbs are 
still pointing down. Okay, they're pointing down. Okay. Wiggling my pinkies. Right, like this. Can you see my camera? Okay, I see your camera. Here we go. Final step goes like this. Just watch. Follow along. Here we go. Okay, I'm turning. Nope. You mine's mine can't do that. Mine stopped. What what is wrong with your arms? Are the the oh, my, my arms are stuck right here and yours turned upside down. Okay, that worked. Um I'm gonna try to break Four. my forearms the rest of the day so I can Four. do that. Okay, so what are you thinking right now? I think you're uh a Martian. I think you are not a human being with are normal you, flexibility. Is your brain thinking wow or how? I wanna say wow, but I wanna <laughs> but I'm honestly saying how. Uh like that is that's why uh that's why i feel like the world needs this book and so that's not like my hard book to close out <laughs> oh that's so good that's so good okay we, we live in a culture that is obsessed with how and and asking how does something work or how are we going to do this or how are we going to do that that is a very important question uh-huh. and there's nothing wrong with that but we jump over the experience and all that is to be gained with letting wow breathe mm-hmm. and letting wonder do its work because we crush uh, wonder and we crush good ideas. We crush innovation. We crush our dreams. We crush so many things because instead of just going, wow, that's amazing. We go, well, how in the world is that going to be possible? And so learning how to replace our how with wow more quickly, I think can get us back to a place of wonder. And hopefully that's what this book does for people. If you would end this with an altar call, like to come forward while we stand, <laughs> I would come forward right now because I feel like I'm very convicted and I feel like I need to go back and read the book again because I, you're spot on. So Harris, this was great. This was really, I'm, I'm glad that I ventured into the world of magic for this podcast. This was, dare I say, yeah. wonderful, Won- wonderful. I hate that joke. Uh, it was a magic yeah. Out. Nope. I'm going to stop there. Anyway, Harris, <laughs> job well done, Fred. Thanks for having me, bro. I really appreciate That's it. Thanks great. for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>